your faithfulness to give, your baptism to get you to heaven, can I tell you it's not going to work. We can only trust one thing to get us to heaven, and that is what God has done on Calvary for us through His own Son, Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, the resurrection was enough to pay for our sin. It satisfied the justice of a holy God. And if we trust anything other than His sacrifice for us on Calvary, then we're lost. Our faith needs to be in Him. Our trust needs to be in Him. I uh, have heard people over the years say, well, you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I understand what they mean by that. I I don't know that that's the best word uh, to use for it. Uh, The acceptance of Christ's sacrifice was something God had to do. He had to accept the sacrifice as enough for His justice. And all we can do is trust it, that it is enough. And uh, the songwriter wrote, It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. That's all I need. That's all I rest on. If, if God is not who He says He is, if Christ is not who He says He is, if He's not done what He said He's done, then I'm lost because that's all I'm trusting to get me to heaven. And I hope and pray that today you've trusted Him as your Savior. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. Let me tell you something. It's easy growing up in a Christian home or a pastor's home where uh, you know we didn't, we didn't discuss whether we went to church or not. <laughs> we woke up and it was just time to go to church, you know. I heard somebody say we were at church so often that if the janitor showed up on Thursday night to wash the windows, we filled our pew and watched him do it, you know. And that's the kind of home I grew up in. And it gets very easy in a situation like that to uh, become complacent in those things, to think that, well, I've lived a good life, or my mom and dad are in ministry, or, uh, and we begin to trust other things. We begin to think that, well, God doesn't really have to save me because I haven't really done a whole lot. But the truth is, we're sinners by nature. And the same price for sin had to be paid for you as it did for me, as it did for anyone else. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way. There are a lot of people who say, well, there's many paths to Jesus. I was listening to a sound clip a number of months ago. And I think it was Oprah Winfrey that made the comment on her show, there are many paths to heaven. No, there's only one. The Bible says it's straight and it's narrow. And few there be that find it. Because it is just one way. And that is through the shed blood, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as payment for a debt that you and I could not pay. And I'm thankful that God loved us that much, aren't you? I know a lot of people who get upset and mad at God and they say, well, I just, I can't, I can't trust in a God who would be so judgmental as to send man to hell. God, God certainly has to be just. That's who He is. If He ceases to be just, He would cease to be God. But I'm thankful He's also a loving God and a merciful God and made a way that man didn't have to go through that. And I've heard people say, well, I don't think a loving God would send anyone to hell. And I agree with that statement. I think a loving God would do all that He could to keep man from hell. In fact, he said that in Scripture, didn't he? Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. 
God's desire isn't to condemn men. We were condemned already because we had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're condemned because we're sinners by nature. God came to save us. That's the good news of the gospel. Why, why so many people deny it and refuse it and reject it, I'll never quite understand. And I hope that we as God's people, as Christians, that have trusted Him as our Savior, I hope that we're good examples and good testimonies and proclaim rightly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim it clearly that men can know and understand that God loved them so much that He was willing to send His Son in our place and has done everything He could to redeem us, to reconcile us to Himself. Boy, isn't that a wonderful... We sang that song this morning. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Isn't it amazing that in Hebrews he says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you can find mercy and help. And What a wonderful thought that we get the opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to the Father anytime we want to. We just simply say, Lord, I'm here again. I've got, a, I've got something on my heart. And we can talk straight to Him. I don't have to go through a priest. Uh, I don't have to go through a church. I can bow my head. Or I can stand uh, wherever I'm at. And with my heart, commune with God. And what a wonderful thought that is. Uh, to know that God allows us that wonderful reconciliation. See, sin had separated us from a holy God. And I'm thankful that He allows us through uh, the mediator of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us to have that fellowship with Him. Not just the salvation, but the fellowship. To be able to walk with Him every day. You know, when God created man, that's, that was His desire. If you take time to read in Genesis, when God made Adam and Eve, His joy was to walk with them in the cool of the day. And when sin came, that fellowship was broken, it was destroyed. And God made a way. Oh, aren't we glad He did. And we read in Job this morning in Sunday school, he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and on the earth again shall stand. He said, I know that there's going to come a day that I'm going to get to see Him with my own eyes. And I'm thankful that we get to see Christ. I, I can't wait. I've never seen Him before. These guys that say they have, they just ate a bunch of pizza the night before, I think. Uh, never seen Him with my own eyes, but I can't wait till the day I do. I've read some descriptions of Him in the Bible, and I'll tell you if they're... I know he's far beyond those things. I was reading a fellow, A.W. Tozer, a number of years ago. He said, whatever we think God to be, he is not. Because he's so far beyond what our thoughts can even imagine that he is not what we think him to be. He's far beyond that. And what I know about him is wonderful enough. Can you imagine when we get to know what we don't know about him, how much more wonderful it's going to be? And looking forward to that. Well, that's not the message. Let's turn to Romans chapter number 7, if you will. Romans chapter number 7. It's good to be saved, isn't it? And I'm thankful that God in His sovereignty and His will and, and His plan for this earth has saw fit, has seen fit to give us His Word in our hands, in our language. And I'll tell you, we're very fortunate people in the United States of America. Most of us have more than one Bible in our hands, most are in our, in our homes. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people around the world still do not have even one copy of Scripture in their own language for them to read. And they long for it, they hunger and thirst for it, and yet we have it every moment of every day readily accessible to us. If we don't have it in our hands, we have it on our cell phones, we can pull it up and read it, or on the Internet. And aren't we privileged to have God's Word? 
in our hands, in our possession, in our language today. Romans chapter number 7. Let's look down to verse number 14. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 14. <clears throat> For we know that the law is spiritual, <clears throat> but I am carnal. This is the Apostle Paul is speaking here, by the way. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is uh, good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform it, that which is good I find not. Uh, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do, then I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he makes this statement in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Father, I pray that you would bless the message and give a clear direction and understanding of the truth that I believe you would have for the day. May we understand something that will help us to be more of what we should be. Lord, we long in our lives to bring honor and glory to you in this lost world that is so darkened by sin, they need so much the light of your glorious truth. May we learn as your people to live according to it. May we uphold it. May we boldly proclaim it. And Lord, may there be a heart of compassion and love to reach others with the gospel, to show them uh, the wonderful, wonderful message of the gospel. I pray that you will guide and direct our thoughts. And may your Holy Spirit move in the hearts of men, do the work that I cannot do. And Father, I pray that you would stir my heart. Lord, help us to have a life and a spirit of uh, living the revived life and stirred up, excited about the things of this book and the things that you've uh, asked us to do in this life. Guide and direct us throughout this service and throughout the time that we have left remaining. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul here expresses... Uh, a war that goes on in his members. And I, I believe that there's nothing that is shocking to us in this. The truth is, if we uh, are have been saved any length of time at all, or if we've been Christians any length of time at all, uh, we can probably, almost all of us, relate to this, that there are times that we know we should do right, that we do wrong, and there are times that we know that uh, we should uh, not do certain things, and we do them. We know that there are some things that we should do, and we don't do them. And Paul... Uh, expresses the frustration of this great battle, this uh, law that works in him. And he speaks of the fact that the inner man is willing. It wants to do what's right. By the way, that, that inner man, that desire to do right, wasn't there before we got saved. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit, when we got saved, the Bible says, "...and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins." There was something that when we were got saved was made alive inside of us. The Holy Spirit came to indwell us and now brings conscience 
and now brings the, his pricking and his, and his conviction to our lives to help us to see uh, the problems that we have, the things that we need to get right. Both the things that we do that we should not and both the things that we should do that we do not. We spend a lot of time in preaching and teaching on the things that we should not do. And I think that there is certainly a need for that in the day that we live. We speak of the evilness of this world and the wickedness and the fact that Christians ought to uh, abstain from these things. They ought to separate themselves from these things. And as the Bible says, they ought not even be mentioned. They ought not to even be named among those that trust Christ as their Savior or that name the name of Christ. That we ought to live in such a way, the Bible says, as becometh the gospel. It, it represents, it, it causes people to see the beauty of the gospel. And, and that's the way the Christian life ought to be, is uh, abstaining from these things. And Paul speaks quite often of these uh, things that we uh, do, that we should not do, uh, the law of the, of the flesh. Notice what he says here in verse 24. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And there's, there's two different things here that are happening. He's been saved, and so his inner man, his heart, is desiring to do what is right. But then there's that old flesh nature that still wars with his members to cause him to want to do what's wrong. And if we're not careful, we will spend so much time dealing with what we should not do that we do not take the time to look into Scripture as to what we should do. Notice that, the Paul, that Paul makes the distinction here between the two. He said, there are some things that I know I ought to do that I do not. He said, there are other things I know I shouldn't do that I do. And he does not make a distinction about the wretchedness between the two ideas. It is just as wrong and it is just as wretched for a Christian to not do the things he knows he's supposed to do as it is for us to do the things that we know we're not supposed to do. Very important that we understand this. And I heard somebody say it this way one time. He says, we've got to be careful that we do not define ourselves by what we are not. But we must define ourselves by what we are according to the Word of God. Are we in line with this book? This book becomes my standard. It not only teaches me by the law what I should not do, it shows me by the Spirit of God what I should do. Now, let's take our Bibles. We're going to look at several passages, and so I'm going to ask if you will to keep your Bibles handy. Turn with me, first of all, to Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians chapter number 3. Understanding this, that it is just as important and it is just as mandatory, it's just as essential in the Christian life, that we do the things that we're supposed to do as it is that we abstain from the things that we ought not to do. In recent weeks, we've spent a good deal of time dealing with issues, things that are going on in this society that certainly Christians ought not to have any part of. We need to separate ourselves from them. We need to take a stand against them. I want to spend a little bit of this morning's message dealing with not only are we not to, are we not to partake of those things and to involve ourselves in those things, but we are to also involve ourselves in some things. And let's take a look at those, if you will. Colossians chapter number 3. We're going to start in verse 1. And for sake of time, we're not going to read the entirety of the chapter. And I'll give you the gist of it. I promise we're not taking it out of context. And you can feel free to read the chapter later this afternoon and make sure that we are right with the context. I'm thankful that as Baptists, we encourage people to hold the Word of God on their laps. 
Uh, we do not believe in pastoral authority, that the, the people that are sitting in the pews do not have uh, the right to understand the truth of God's Word. You can understand it as easily as this pastor can. And we encourage people to take God's Word. And I would hope that if I ever preached anything from the pulpit up here that was incorrect or not right according to Scripture, that somebody would come and let me know that. Because our desire is to be right according to Scripture. And uh, let's take a Colossians chapter number 3, if you will. He says this, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, notice this, on things above, not on things of the earth. So already in chapter 3, Paul is beginning to set the stage. He's laying a foundation uh, of things that ought be in the Christian life. He said there's the desire, there's, he calls them here the affections uh, that it speaks of. And he says, uh, set your affection on things above not on things on the earth. And so he's already dealing with the fact that the things that we desire in our life, our affection, ought to be towards the things of God. The psalmist said it this way in the psalm. He says, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. And he's saying, I wish I could take my will, the things I love, the things I am affectionate over, and I wish I could turn them to make them the same as what God is affectionate about, what He loves what his heart is. And the, and the battle of the Christian life really comes down to one simple choice, and that is my way or God's way. You say, Pastor, that's oversimplifying it, but the truth is if we want to live the victorious Christian life, it is as simple as that one decision. Throughout the day to day, am I going to live the way I want to live or am I going, am I going to live the way he wants me to live? Now, that includes not only not doing the things that make him and, uh, uh, sad and displease him, but it also includes the things that would bring joy to his heart and cause me to be glorifying to him. Notice as we continue on in chapter number 3, he says this, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in, glorify, in glory. He says in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members upon, uh, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. And, and these are all, old, uh, these are old, old English words for some of the uh, immoral behavior that we're seeing in our society today. The idea of adultery being commonplace. The idea of, uh, of immoral behaviors outside of the bonds of marriage or before marriage. Uh, being rampant and even expected in our society today. And I'm talking it's becoming acceptable even among God's people and in our churches. There needs to be a holiness about our relationships as part of our testimony. And he speaks of this. He talks about the inordinate affections and the, the, the things that uh, are spoken of in, Rome, uh, in Romans where it speaks of the fact that men leaving the natural use of the woman and likewise the women using, leaving the natural use uh, of the man and how wicked and vile that lifestyle is. And he speaks of these things as things that we are to mortify, we're to put them down, we're to not have them as part of our, our uh, life. And he says this, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime. I'm glad that's past tense, aren't you? The truth is, when we get saved, those things ought not to be part of our life anymore. Now, are they? Sometimes. Paul said, the things that I would not, those I do. Paul even understood and knew 
No wonder he got to the end of Romans chapter 7 and said, Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul, one of the greatest Christians. Paul, one of the folks that wrote more Scripture than any other person, single person in history. Paul, who is the only author, human author of Scripture, who was given the authority by God to pen these words, Be ye followers of me, as I am of Christ. That's the kind of example the Apostle Paul was. And yet he said, O wretched man that I am. Why? Because he knew that this law of the flesh was still warring in his members. And so, the Bible teaches us here, in Paul's writing in chapter 3, that if we're risen with Christ, our affection ought to be set on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because the things on the earth are going to cause us to feed the desires, the appetites. Can we use the Bible word here, affection of the flesh? He speaks of that in the early part of Colossians 3. And we've certainly covered many of these things over the years. And and I'm not going to go through uh, all of them and and preach in detail on them, but I am going to read through them. Let's look in verse number 8. But now you also put off all these. Now here's a bunch of things. He's going to give a list. I will say this. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list to give us a sense of the types of things that ought not to be in our life. He says this in verse number 8 that you put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So this communication is not dealing with the lifestyle, but it is speaking of the words. It distinguishes that here. By the way, it is not okay for Christians to tell off-colored jokes and innuendos. I don't care if you're in the workplace. You say, well, I'm trying to fit in. There needs to be a holiness and a difference among God's people. And all that we would learn to be careful. I've spoken on this before. We even use, <coughs> there's, a, there's even a, a list of things out there that people have put together. And, and the list is called Christian cuss words. And what they are are words that we have substituted for real cuss words and curse words and filthy language that we know what we mean when we say them. But they're not the actual word. Can I say, even those ought not to be among the Christian. Because we understand and know what that's speaking of. Be careful of our filthy communication. It says this, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, these are the things that ought not to be. And we've preached on those. I'm not going to take the whole message to teach on that. What I want us to look at is this. Because Paul said this, Both issues cause me to be wretched. The things that I do that I'm not supposed to, we understand that. We hear a lot of preaching on that. But what about the things we're supposed to do and put on that we do not? Paul said, that makes me wretched as well. Look what he says here. In verse number 10, he says, And having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. And so, understand this. In Philippians 2, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the idea that Christ had a mindset, and we were to have a similar mindset. Now, in Philippians 2, he's speaking primarily, if you read the chapter in the context of it, he is speaking primarily of the humility of the, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you will begin to look at the things that Paul deals with here, as he says in verse number uh, uh, 10, he says, And have 
put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, whether there is neither Greek or where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all in in all. Put on, therefore, now these are the things he's going to tell us that we ought to do. And understand this, that to neglect these things is as wretched as not abstaining from the things he previously mentioned. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. Well, what a thought. The bowels in the New Testament were the seat of the emotions, and with all of our heart, it was the foremost thought, it was the foremost desire. When we tell somebody we care about them today, we say, I love you with all my heart. In this time period, they would have expressed it as their bowels. You know what it is to, to be lovesick or to have such a feeling of emotion that you, you have those, those gnawings in the pit of your stomach. And you just feel empty inside and you're almost sick to your stomach because of the, the, the emotion that you have. And this is where this term came from. That there be bowels of mercies, that the desire of our heart is to be a merciful people. It's amazing to me how often Christ in His earthly ministry spoke of the fact that we were to do good to them that despised us. We were, we were to treat the, 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 the wicked and the ungodliness of the way people treated us with kindness. I almost preach, and we will probably soon in the next few weeks be dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus begins to teach a doctrine that astounded these people. It went against every idea of social concepts of the day that He lived in. He said, you've heard that it, uh, that it should be an eye for an eye. But he said, no. He said, you've got it wrong. He said, you need to do, do, show kindness to these things. Why? Because there needs to be bowels of mercy in the Christian's life. Why is it that even among our circles, our type of Christianity, and folks that would believe similar to how we believe, and hold to the King James Bible, and hold to uh, the, the doctrines of it, to hold to the separating standards that are given in its Word. Why is it that we are noted as unkind or hateful? Could it be that in the process of being fervent and steadfast and bold, we have mistaken uh, cruelty and unkindness as the standing firm and standing fast? Can I submit to you today, it is possible to be steadfast and unmovable. It is possible to be bold and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and still do it with grace. To still do it with the mercy about us. We're not angry at the people, we're angry at the sin, but yet so often it comes across that we're angry at the people. Can I tell you this today? I can't stand the sin that I find in my own life, much less the lives of others. But that doesn't mean we don't love the people. It doesn't mean that we don't try to reach them, help them. Nurture them along the way. I would hope the same would be true if I was in that situation, that someone would help me in those areas. Would come alongside me and rather than, than criticize, rather than, than speak evil of me, come alongside and say, uh, let me pray with you. Let me help you with these things. There's some things I'm noticing that aren't lining up with Scripture. I would hope somebody would do that. Why can we not do that for others? Notice this. What else are we to put on? Vows of mercy, kindness, 
kindness. He goes on to say, humbleness of mind. Can I say this? Most of the reason we cannot do the other things on this list is because of this one right here. We do not have the humbleness of mind. I know we joke about sometimes our humility. I had a lady send me a thing the other day. She does crossword puzzles, word search puzzles. And she sent me a picture. She said, I don't know why, but for some reason I keep finding your last name, B-O-O-H-E-R. I keep finding these in these word puzzles recently. She said, I didn't know you were that famous. And so I texted back jokingly. I said, well, I try to keep my fame under wraps because of the exceeding greatness of my humility. And the truth is, about the time we truly have humility, we begin to get proud of it. I was in college. I crammed six, uh, four years into six years. I, I did not uh, go through college quickly. I remember one professor, and uh, I can't remember a thing that he taught me that, that year except for one thing. There was an assignment that he required every class didn't matter what subject he was teaching. He required every class to do it in the semester. And that was we had to go through the Bible and we had to find every word that said pride or proud or haughty, anything that dealt with the subject of pride. We had to write the reference to the verse down and we had to write a one-sentence uh, truth that we got from it. And he gave us the entire semester to do it. Like most good college students, we waited till the last two weeks of the semester and then tried to cram it all in. I remember the day came for us to turn him in. I can still see him sitting there on the corner of his desk and these stacks of notebooks stacked up where he had collected them. And he sat there on the edge of his desk. He said, now what have you learned from this? And a couple of kids raised their hands. You know, when you're in Bible college and you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you know everything by then. And it's amazing how much you forget as you get older, how much dumber you seem to get as you get older. But you know everything at that point, so you have to expound your knowledge and impress the professor with it. And these folks raised their hand. And some of them said, well, pride goeth before destruction. And the haughty spirit before fall. Another kid raised their hand, well, I learned this. And he said, well, that's a lesson the Bible teaches on it, but that's not what I want you to get from this. After several moments of going through this, a couple of people raising their hand, making an attempt at it, he made this statement. He said, here's what I wanted you to learn. He said, every sin, every sin has its root in pride. I was, I was young, 19, 20 years old, and I thought, man, uh, not every sin. I, I promise you, I can think of some that don't have their root in pride. And I started thinking through some different sins. And I'd think of one, I'd think, ah, I got him. But then when I thought far enough back, and sure enough, it came down to it. It was pride. I was sitting in a, a men's meeting a number of years ago with a dear friend of mine that was preaching the session. And he made this statement. He said, none of us ever fall into sin. We, we willingly choose. Falling into sin makes it sound like we're going about our business and unaware, we trip over something, not realizing it's there. And then the next thing we know, we're there and we're already sinning and we didn't even realize it. But the truth is, there's not a sin that happens that we do not willingly choose to do. Why? Because of our pride. I want this. 
And so I'm going to do it. Paul says, put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind. Notice this, meekness. Well, we could use a healthy dose of that in our society today, couldn't we? Among God's people, could we not uh, have some meekness? I, I, I have conversations with a number of pastor friends and even some uh, members of our church from time to time. And it's amazing to me the arrogance that we find in the pulpits of our churches today. Men that stand up and feel like they are God's gift to serving. I was uh, listening a number of uh, weeks ago to a fellow who was sharing something, number of, about a year or so ago, I guess now, he was sharing some things with me. He said, I just don't feel adequate yet. And I said, good. So if you ever feel adequate to get up and preach the Word of God, then you're not ready. Because how in the world do we take God's eternal Word, perfection, righteous, holy, just, and ever feel as a sinful man that we can get up and adequately project its truth? I'm thankful the Holy Spirit works when we preach the Gospel. And the Bible even says that He's chosen the foolishness of preaching to accomplish His work. And I'm glad He does. I'm glad He takes something as insignificant as a human clay vessel, one that's, uh, that's prone to sin and one that's prone to, to, to the flesh nature and is able to use it to accomplish His work. But rest assured, it's Him that does it. I believe that's why He does it, so that no flesh can glory. Notice He says this, there needs to be a meekness among God's people. Isn't it amazing how many times we feel like we're doing God a favor by being the type of Christian that we are? Well, I, I'll tell you what, boy, God is sure lucky to have me. Oh, there needs to be a spirit of meekness. I am grateful that God chooses to use us. But He does not have to. And if we ever get to the place where we feel like we are God's gift to Christianity... We are not putting on the things in the Christian life that we are supposed to put on. And Paul says that's wretched too. Look what he says here. There needs to be long-suffering. Boy, that's an amazing one. Hold your place here for a moment. Turn to back to the, or to the book of Ephesians chapter number 4. Now, I'm not going to get through the message today in all of its entirety. There's so much more I need to speak of on each of these things, but I want you to notice some things here. Let's go to verse number um, let's go to verse number twenty one, chapter number four, verse number twenty one. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That sounds kinda of like what he was saying to the Colossians, doesn't it? But notice he says in verse twenty three, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That she put, and that she put on the new man, which is after, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And boy, we've misinterpreted that word, that, that verse before. For some reason, we think that we're not supposed to be angry, and that's how we don't sin, and uh, that we need to get things right before the sun gets down on our wrath. That's not what this verse is speaking of here. The context is having a, an eschewing of the evil in our lives, the sin. Notice he says in verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, 
speaking every man the truth with his neighbor. Putting away is the same phrase that's used when it speaks of a man putting away his wife in the area of divorcement. That this is something that is done and it's in our past. It's not to be there. And he understands this in verse number 25, that this sin needs to be divorced from us. It ought not be a part of us anymore. It ought not to have any part of us anymore. Where in the world we get the idea that, 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 that it's okay that we make an attempt to get rid of sin, but we know it's going to be there. No, no, there needs to be a desire to be completely absent from it. Notice he says this, and in the middle of all this, he says, Be ye angry. There is to be a holy anger at the sin in our life. There needs to be a revival of God's people understanding the sinfulness of sin and saying, I want no part of it. And I'm angry when it happens in my life. It bothers me when I get to the end of my day and I look back and say, boy, I have sinned here and I have sinned there, and it causes me to be angry about it. I get upset over it. And Paul says this, be ye angry and sin not. Let that anger keep us from our sin. Let that anger for our sin cause us to be separated from it. Then he says this, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't ever get over it. Make sure that throughout our Christian life, the anger for sin continues to be stirred in our hearts because he goes on to say with a colon there and not an end of the sentence in verse 27, neither give place to the devil. There ought to be a holy anger in our hearts towards the things of the flesh to where we put them away. We say, I don't want them to have a part of me. That sounds like what Paul said in Colossians 3, doesn't it? But notice what he says here, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have uh, to give him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the, unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you and all malice. Now, so far, we hear the same message he told them. These things ought not to be so. Now, notice what he says here in verse number 32. He's gotten done telling them what they should not have. And here's what he says. And be ye what? Kind. If I don't do this, is that as wretched as if I did some of these things He told me not to do? Yeah. That's what the Bible's saying here. And be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Here's a tough one. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And be ye followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And have given him an offering for our sin. Are we to be angry? Are we to be bold? Are we to be mad? Yes, but not at people. We're to be angry and mad and have wrath towards sin. We're to have kindness and love and affection and compassion for those that are without. And it is just as important for us to have those things that are attributes of our life as it is for us to abstain from the works of the flesh. He reverts back in verse number 3 of Ephesians 5. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once 
let it not be once named among you as become of saints. Neither filthiness, nor talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And again, we see very similar language used here. Be ye not therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye what? Light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Put them off and put on the things of the Spirit. For the fruit, number notice this in verse number 9, for the fruit of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God that comes and lives inside of us, is going to bear fruit. It's not something we attempt. It's not something we work and labor to try to achieve in our life. It's something that is accomplished as we yield ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in our life. He will naturally bear fruit. And let's see what it is. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I love this. He goes through all of that. And now he says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. If we're going to not do the things that we shouldn't, if we're going to do the things that we should, it is going to require one thing of us. And that is that we are absolutely, 100%, without any reservation, yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You say, how do I know what the Holy Spirit wants for me? He tells me in this book, over and over and over again, not just once or twice, sometimes not even three or four times, but dozens of times throughout the New Testament, we find that the Christian is to abstain from the works of the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. To put off the old man and to walk in the new. Over and over again we find, if we're not careful as God's people, we will consider ourselves good Christians, that we have succeeded in the Christian life, that we have grown in grace simply by putting off the things that we know we should not do. My question today is, have we put on the things that we should have put on? And Paul said, these are the, the things that I war with. The things I know I'm not supposed to do, he said, I find myself doing, and that makes me a wretched person, a wretched man. But he said, just as wretched as that is when I know that I should do this, and I don't. 
He speaks of both and then says, O wretched man that I am. So we finish in Colossians chapter number 3. He speaks of this in verse number 13. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these things, notice this, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Some people try to substitute the word love for charity. I'm I'm thankful our King James Bible puts the right word in its place, aren't you? Charity is a little bit beyond love. It's love that moves to action. It's one thing for us to say, I love you. It's another thing entirely for me to show it. It's amazing how many times I have heard over the years or I've been talking with a couple. And you know how men are. We're not emotional creatures. Women, you'll have to forgive us for this. Men, men are of the mindset, well, I told her I loved her when we got married. That should be enough. Women need to hear it more often. But can I say this? It's one thing to say you love something. It's another thing entirely to love something so much that you're moved to action because of it. By the way, when we say I love the Lord Jesus Christ... Is it just a love that we express, or is it one that moves us to action? Paul, speaking of the things that we should put on, he gets to the end of the list and he says, Above all, out of all the things I've mentioned, above all, put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. This is how you know that you're maturing in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter number 4, Paul writes, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. In 1 John he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, Knoweth not God, for God is love. I am thankful that we preach and we teach on the things we shouldn't do. And the Bible speaks very clearly of that. We need to speak boldly. In fact, if anything, in the day we live, we need more and even harder preaching on those things. But we have also left behind a lot of things in Scripture that tell us these are things we ought to put on. The message this morning is, have we put on the things that we should have? Have we yielded ourselves to the Holy Spirit in such a way that His fruit being produced in us brings about these changes in my life? You know, in Romans chapter number 12, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in verse number 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In verse 2 he says, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed... And he uses the word here, conformed to this world. But he goes on to say, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world 
causes confirmation. Pressure from the outside that molds us into its image. Transformation is something entirely different. It's a change that's made on the inside that works its way outward. It's amazing how oftentimes in our Christian lives we think that we can conform to what a Christian should be. When the truth is, what needs to happen is a transformation. There needs to be a renewing of our minds. There needs to be a mind of Christ. Not only to abstain from the things that are displeasing to Him, that are sinful to Him, that are wrong in His eyes, but also to put on the things that are right. I think the world has long seen Christians that have put off things. They have long heard preaching on what we ought not do. But they have very little seen Christians putting on the things that they ought to. To clothe ourselves in the righteousness of God. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, He made this statement that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He didn't say that men may see what you keep yourself from or your abstinence from evil and glorify your Father. He said that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I think certainly we understand, and it goes without saying today, and I know we preach enough on it. We know what is wrong and what we need to stay away from. The Bible is very clear on that. But how often do we stop and say, Lord, what am I supposed to put on? What is supposed to characterize my life? Are we living with the fruit of the Spirit apparent in our lives? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. And Miss Evelyn will play just a verse of invitation song in just a moment. If God's spoken to you, perhaps you'd come. Our altars will be open. If you are uncomfortable coming to an altar, there's nothing wrong with praying at your seat. Certainly you can do that. But I would ask this, that if God has spoken to your heart and caused there to be uh, some conviction or direction in your life, that you would make that decision for Him today. Father, we pray that You'll bless the preaching of Your Word.